It's really great to be with you guys. Really, really great to be with you guys. Um, I have to confess, I'm a little bit of a stalker of the Watford Church. <laughs> I, I've been envious of you since the Watford Church began. I mean, really, uh, I think you guys have been on an amazing, amazing journey and, uh, and still continue on a, on a really incredible path. And uh, so I follow all your media channels and Malcolm's bulletins and podcasts and all this kind of thing. And Malcolm, of course, is a very good friend of mine as well. Um, we're on our own very interesting journey in the East. And uh, you might have heard about that. Um, but I, won't, I don't really have a lot of time to get into that. But I will introduce my family. So, um, so that's Nancy over there and, and in the picture on the uh, far right here. So that's my wife of uh, many uh, decades. Um, uh, I've actually forgotten how many. Uh, but, um, yeah, she'll forgive me, I'm sure. And that's our daughter, Georgia, with Nancy in that picture. They're in Edinburgh in that picture, where Georgia's presently doing her master's in um, counselling in university, uh, in the University of Edinburgh. And she's also holding down a full-time job whilst doing it, which... Uh, uh, amazing, uh, amazing. She's part of the Edinburgh Church. Um, so that's myself and uh, my son Joel uh, on the top of Ben Nevis. And that was the, uh, Joel was a semi-professional footballer. Um, and at that time he was playing at uh, Braintree Town, uh, who I think maybe just before that time, Luton Town, who Malcolm follows, were in, they were in the same division, but uh, Luton have gone upward and Braintree have gone downward uh, in the time since and um, uh, yeah so there we are on top of Ben Nevis uh, our annual end of season road trip that's my oldest daughter Gemma on the left with uh, her son Baron my grandson and uh, Baron's at uh, uh, the youth camp he's 12 years old uh, makes me feel very old. My grandson's 12 years old. I mean, I turned 60 this year, by the way, and I, I'm looking at these youthful 80-plus-year-olds, and I'm like, wow, I've still got loads left in me. I look at you guys, and I'm, like, amazing. So, um, so that's, that's, that's my uh, family. Um, Simone is helping me. Can you transition to the first slide? Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so uh, Jonah, the forgotten chapter. The forgotten chapter of Jonah. How can I show God's mercy to people who've hurt me? Let's open up the book of Jonah where we see God's merciful character towards his enemies and a prophet who really doesn't like that mercy when it's shown to other people. How does God respond to Jonah? What about us? What does God do when we struggle to have compassion for the people who have hurt us or even the people we struggle to like? There's a lot to reflect on. One of the great things about Jonah is that it's ironic. And one of the main points is how God's own people can often become God's biggest obstacle to his purposes in the world. So Jonah's kind of like an anti-hero. He's an anti-prophet who is called to be God's spokesperson, but ends up being God's antagonist in the story. 
it's full of humor. Some of it we won't get because we're not, you know, first century Israelites, but, uh, uh, but it is full of humor, twists and reversals and a whole theme about God's mercy in relationship to God's judgment. It's all the big questions that we have when we come to the Bible, and it's packed into four short chapters, one and a half pages in most of our Bibles. I mean, it's not much space. It's a fascinating book. It's like a microcosm of all the beauty, all the potential, but also all of the challenges that the Bible represents to its readers. Okay, next slide, please. There's a well-known story, in, it's, it's a well-known story in the Bible, but it's not so well understood. What comes to your mind when you think of Jonah? Whale. Yeah, okay, whale. Anything else? Yeah, it's the big, it's the big fish. That's the, uh, that's, that's the thing that uh, comes up in most um, people about this fish swallowing uh, Jonah. And in popular Christian culture, and especially children's Bible story books, the story ends in chapter 3. But I don't know if you've noticed, there's actually four chapters in the book of, um, in the book of Jonah. Here's an example of one of the children's books. Okay, I'll read, I'll read the whole book to you. It won't take very long. God is looking for Jonah. He wants Jonah to preach. There's Jonah. He's afraid of God. Jonah hides from God behind a tent. A town called Joppa is by the sea. That's where Jonah tries to flee. A crowd of people wait to board a ship. Is Jonah there? Yes, he is. On the ship, Jonah tries to escape, but God sees him. But the ship is tossed in stormy water while Jonah sleeps. When Jonah wakes, he sees God's anger. The kids could have stayed in. Um, throw me to the sea underwater a whale swallows poor Jonah three days later the very happy whale spits Jonah onto a beach at last Jonah returns to preach the word of God there you go we can go home now <laughs> chapter 4 suffers a brutal edit at best and is completely missing at worst. But the real big surprise in the book is not the fish. It's not even Nineveh repenting. But it comes in this climactic fourth and final chapter. One of the challenges is that it's such a well-known story um, as a result of the way it's been portrayed in uh, creative and sometimes unfortunate ways. So often we come to the book with a set of assumptions that are on they're just unhelpful. They're overly simplistic. The truth is that the book of Jonah is one of the most sophisticated one and a half pages in your entire Bible. I don't have time to unpack it all. I wish I did. I did preach on this a long time ago once, and it was two hours long, and I know some of us want to go home. So, and, and I do too. My voice doesn't even last that long these days. So, so you're blessed. Um, it deals with themes about religious hypocrisy, exposing spiritual apathy, the devastating effects that it has on us and other people and the ways that God can use pain and suffering in our lives as a severe mercy 
to wake us up. Themes of divine judgment and divine repentance. The story, as all of the scriptures, it's aimed at revealing God's character and what he's up to in the world of, to his people. Next slide, please, Simone. So, story so far. Jonah appears only one other time in the Old Testament, and it's not positive. It's 2 Kings chapter 14. Uh, you can read that in your own time. But I'll just tell you it's not positive. So before the story of Jonah even begins, we're suspicious of his character. And certainly that would have been the case for ancient readers. The book employs a comic contrast pitting Jonah's selfishness against the humility and the repentance of the pagans. It features ironic characters who do the opposite of what you would expect. The sailors who are supposed to be immoral, but actually have soft and repentant hearts and turn to God in humility. The king of the most powerful, murderous empire on the planet, and he humbles himself before God. And even the king's cows repent. How does that happen? In modern day terms, we would call it satire. Instead of preaching to Nineveh, Jonah flees in the opposite direction, seeking refuge on a ship, heading to, uh, across the Mediterranean, and God sends a storm to wake him up. The sailors, meanwhile, discern that something's going on, and they confront him. He then speaks a load of religious twaddle and admits, yeah, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the God who made the sea and dry land. That's a joke. God indeed made the sea and dry land, and Jonah's stupid enough to run from God by getting on a boat. His recklessness brings ruin due to his spiritual apathy, and God transforms this near-death experience that he has into a severe mercy that awakens Jonah temporarily. In the sea monster's belly, Jonah's semi-repentant prayer leads him to being vomited, back on to dry land. Interestingly, um, Dagon, the Assyrian uh, fish god, half man, half fish, um, surely stories of this weird, angry man vomited out of the sea would have reached Nineveh before he did, and perhaps that would have uh, helped their repentance. He delivers this short five-word sermon, but it's weird, it's odd. There's no mention of the Ninevites what they've done, what they've done wrong, or that they how they should respond. There's no mention of God. Is Jonah intentionally doing the bare minimum? It's as if he's trying to sabotage his own message. Surprisingly, the Ninevites and their animals genuinely repent, and God spares the city. Chapter four, however, reveals Jonah's unexpected. Uh, unexpected reaction to uh, the success. Um, next slide, please, Simone. Okay, so uh, let's read verses one to four. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. He became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me 
to die than to live. Now, I don't know about you, but getting a whole pagan city to repent as a result of a five-word in Hebrew sermon, you'd think that's going to look good on your CV as a prophet and put you into the prophetic hall of fame. If that was me, I'd be going around bragging about that, right? I'd be like, yeah, I've got a whole city to repent, but not Jonah. The chapter begins with this whole escapade being completely unpalatable to him. He's fuming mad. He becomes, the Bible talk in, in Hebrew says he was hot with anger. And so he, this begins Jonah's tirade against God. He accuses God of being too nice to bad people. He's quoting God's own description of himself from Exodus 34, verse 6, and throwing it back in his face as an insult. You are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. God would use these same words for critiquing God for forgiving his enemies. I knew you were like this. You've always been like this. You've been like this since day one. And what's funny is that he wouldn't even exist as an Israelite if God were not like this. But what Jonah 4 is all about is exposing the dark side of God's mercy and grace It's the scandal of the liberality of God's grace. Because, of course, I'm quite happy if I come to realize that I'm a messed up person and I turn to Jesus and he shows me grace. I'm very happy about that. But then there's this other complex thing that happens to you as a follower of Jesus when you realize that He's also like that to the person I actually don't like very much or I despise or has hurt me in some way. After his rant, Jonah goes outside the city and he asks God to take his life. Remember Elijah did this in 1 Kings 19? He uses the same exact words. This is loaded with Bible study rabbit holes to explore. I wish I had time, but I don't have time. He's mapping, uh, there's, there's stuff about him mapping onto the character of Cain and his story. Connections with Exodus 34. There's Elijah. There's really interesting study is, why is it right next to the book of Obadiah? Go back and read the book of Obadiah and see. It just plays in complete contrast to the story of Obadiah. Let's have the next slide, please. A tale of two shelters. Jonah had gone out, sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about this plant? It is, he said. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. 
There's a connection here to the Feast of Sukkah, the Feast of Tents, the Feast of Tabernacles. In Deuteronomy, um, this is the only feast where Israel were given the command to be joyful. Jonah is rejoicing in his sukkah, all right, his tent. He's having his own feast of sukkot. But it's also, it's a feast where you are to invite the immigrants, the orphans, the widows in your neighborhood. It's charged with inviting the nations to your Eden party. Interesting. Jonah's inviting no one to his party. It's one of three moments as well in the scriptures of worms eating, or in the Old Testament, of worms eating anything. Manna, when the Israelites failed to trust God on the Sabbath. Trust God for our daily bread. Jesus also had something to say about that. In Deuteronomy 28, God says that if Israel is faithful to the covenant promises, they'll be blessed with abundance. But then there's the inversion in the promised land, failure to be faithful to the covenant, and the locusts will eat your crops, and the worms will eat your vines. So in both cases, worms are eating things. It's about lack of trust, and God sends a worm. How is that not part of what's going on in Jonah's story? He's fixated on his own sukkah, which has just become an image of everything that's wrong with him and the story. He builds his own shelter instead of God being his shelter. And God wants to provide him with a shelter anyway, and does so, and then takes it away. It's also why he shuts other people out. He doesn't want other people to experience God's mercy. So God gives them a, a plant that makes him happy, and then he takes it away from him. The east wind, also in this passage, um, Bible references for the east when famines are caused by the east wind, locusts are brought into the plagues of Egypt by the east wind. God sends an east wind to part the waters of the sea, which is salvation for Israel, but judgment on the Egyptians. Jeremiah describes the Babylonian exile as being carried away by the east wind. In Ezekiel, the vine of David is destroyed by the east wind. The ships of Tarshish are broken by east winds multiple times, and God sends an east wind against Jonah. <coughs> Pause. Think about that. It's incredible. This is just loaded with imagery. So God's object lesson is he provides a vine. Ancient Israelites reading the story would have burst out laughing because the name of this rare plant in Hebrew is, uh, I'm not sure I've got my pr pronunciation quite right, is kikayon. And, and when you say it out loud, it sounds like you're saying the Hebrew sentence, he is vomiting Jonah. Vomiting is what the fish did to Jonah, and it's as if God now responds to Jonah with his own vomit through the vomit plant. I mean, once again, Jonah says, just let me die. And they're Jonah's last words in the story. We don't hear from him again. Next slide, please. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? So God asked Jonah a question. 
Jonah's shown a lot of favor for this plant. It's only been with him for a hot minute. He didn't even cultivate the thing, and yet he seems so emotionally attached to it. God asks, is it okay if I show similar favor on something that's slightly more valuable, like a huge city with 120,000 people who have lost their way and all their animals? And that's how the book ends, with God asking permission from Jonah to show mercy to his enemies. Knowing they're left from their right, that's all over the Torah. Uh, haven't got time to go there. Another fascinating rabbit hole. Uh, check it out. And another one of the surprising things about these last words in the book of Jonah is how tender and gentle God is with Jonah. Following his royal failure. A bit of homework. Go read Psalm 91 afterwards and tell me this is not an invitation to Jonah to live in that psalm. The story ends with an unanswered question because getting the question answered is not really the point. The point is that the book is trying to mess with me and you. Is it okay if God loves his creation and its image-bearing humans so much that he will give every opportunity for people, for people to discover his mercy? And if those humans happen to be the enemies of God's covenant people, God says, are you okay if I show them indiscriminate kindness? Jonah clearly thinks the Ninevites are the worst wretched sinners on the planet. However, the most hard-hearted person in this story is the prophet. It's Jonah. God's trying to get him to see, Jonah, don't you see what's happening here? You're part of the covenant people, and that's cool. But that doesn't for a second excuse your religious hypocrisy, your superiority. Not for a second. You're just as broken and just as lost, he said. But I tell you, who hear me love your enemies, Jesus said. But I tell you, who hear me, who hear me love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. I think even as Christians, we respond to some of these teachings of Jesus in a most bizarre way. It's not easy. I recognize there'll be stories of real pain in any group of this size and real wounds uh, that you've experienced as a result of other people's behavior in a group of this size. But if there's one place in the world where the spiral of humans wronging each other and responding to those wrongs, if there's one place that it stops, it stops at the cross. The community of people that form around the cross are called to live life differently, not because we think we're better, but because we've been shown grace and compassion. It's challenging, man. It's really challenging. July 2015. For me, it was a culmination of, some of you will know, I had a massive moral failure. Our world, our family world, was turned upside down as I um, crashed from a pedestal. The root of which was bitterness, unresolved bitterness, disappointment, hurt. But it also, my actions caused monumental amount of carnage, hurt, disappointment, anger, shock, 
with my family and friends. And I know even some people in this room were close to what was going on and they also were affected by it. But you know, the most important part of the recovery journey was the repair of fractured relationships that had been harmed as a result of my selfish, dishonest actions in secret over a number of years. Whilst teaching, whilst preaching, whilst heading up the, the youth and family ministry for many years, whilst heading up a Christian charity program that, that we funded, that we funded, it's all very public. It was all, you know, extremely public. And uh, though a tough thing to go through for me and my family, it was necessary. And I wouldn't swap it for anything. I wouldn't wish it on anyone, but I wouldn't swap it for anything. It's part of the journey that we needed, I needed, Nancy needed, my family needed, the church needed, that I had to go through. There was one brother and his wife who were very close to all the carnage and felt the full impact of it. Clearly, early on, it was a struggle for me and them to be in the same space together, in the same room. Um, but somehow, with the help of the Holy Spirit and another couple, we agreed to meet once every four to six weeks, spend time together, talk about things that were difficult to talk about. The first several weeks, we just explored each other's stories. We talked about our personalities with the help of a personality profiling tool, Enneagram, I don't know if you know that, but... Um, and we talked about how that played into our relational dynamic and learned how to communicate with each other. And, and we prayed. We prayed a lot. We ate together, too. Um, we uh, were rotating around the three couples' houses. And the hosts of whatever session it was brought the agenda. They fed everyone. We called the group Koinonia, sharing of life. You, I'm sure you'll know that in Malcolm's ministry, what Koinonia is all about. It's acts to 42 come to life and within six months we'd gone from it being difficult to be in a room together to being best friends and pretty much every year since then we've gone on holiday together we've camped together and it's been an incredible incredible journey I think that's what Jonah 4 is getting at love your enemies and sometimes your enemies are closer than you want to accept. What Jonah chapter 4 is doing, what Jesus often did in his teaching, is he's, he's deconstructing the whole idea of what an enemy is. You can see clearly what's happened in Jonah's mind. The Ninevites have become the bad guys. They've been demonized in this whole thing. Um, but they had soft hearts and turned to God immediately. That's the point of the cross. Every human being receives grace and mercy. I don't have, get the prerogative to stand up before the cross and decide who is deserving of mercy and grace and forgiveness. And neither do you. That's not our business. I know how many of us, we may have difficult people, an enemy, a toxic person in our life... We might think I'd be able to follow Jesus much better if that person had never crossed my path. My, my life would be much better without them. But Jonah 4 just flips it on its head and it says, could that person 
who is in your life be precisely the divine invitation for you to grow and mature in your experience of God's grace. And he does that through our pain. Not just now and receiving it, but beginning to show it to someone else. Not just mentally ascending to it, but actually beginning to let it throw through you. Could it be that this is actually the next step of growth for you? Next slide, please, Simone. We're almost there. I'm going to let you go home soon. Uh, question? Yeah, no, that's fine. Yeah. So, yeah, that's fine. I gave them time to write down. Jonah welcomes the fact that God would show mercy to people like him, but, it's, but he's ready to die when God shows the same mercy to his enemies. So God sits Jonah down for a talk. Are you okay if God loves people that you despise? That's how the book ends. That's because ultimately the book of Jonah is not about Jonah. It's about the readers of the book of Jonah. The story is how one of the biggest obstacles to God's purposes in the world is God's own people. Think about the parable of the two sons. What's the context? He's addressing Jesus is in that situation. He's addressing religious experts who are criticizing him for hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. And they ask for a sign and he says, yeah, sign of Jonah. It's connection. You see that. When our view of other humans gets taken captive by a story other than the story of God's grace. And God's overflowing love and mercy for his broken creation. When we mistake our enemies for God's enemies, we become more like Jonah than we're willing to admit or imagine. That's where I was in my dark time. That's exactly where I was. And it was people in the same room as me in church. It was people who were my brothers and sisters in church. When our view of other humans goes there, we become like Jonah. Try calling to mind the person in your life that you dislike the most, or maybe the type of person you just can't stand, and ask yourself, are you okay with the fact that God passionately loves them? So much so that God came among us in the person of Jesus to give his own life and love as a gift to you and also to them. If God has made this gesture of generous love to them how does that inform how you should go on relating to them they're the questions that the book of Jonah asks next slide please God has to he marshal half the forces of nature to get his prophet to do anything. In the popular imagination, the book is about poor Jonah and, and we miss the opportunity to talk about actions and consequences. And then the fact that you can repair with God even after poor actions that lead to terrible consequences. And the book ends with a question that invites us 
to the opportunity for personal reflection as we move in to communion together.